0: So what people think are a boundary is a way of keeping you away from me, protecting me from you. But if you think about it just in literal physical terms, a boundary is a place where two people meet. It's not an aversive experience. It's not defenses. It's how you have a real connection with somebody. So the purpose of boundaries is not protection. The purpose of boundaries is connection and intimacy. You must be some kind of therapist.
1: I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Nguyen, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Today, my guest is Avram Weiss, PhD. He's a clinical psychologist who's been in practice for 40 years based in Maine. He's the author of four books, including his most recent book, Hidden in Plain Sight, How Men's Fears of Women Shape Their Intimate Relationships. Today, we're going to dig right in to exactly the title of the book, and it's going to be juicy and exciting. Avram, welcome. Great.
0: Thank you. Good to be here.
1: All right. I want to dive right into the controversy. Um, I personally think it's super important that we better understand this topic of how men's fears of women shape their intimate relationships. And I I think this is great work that you're doing. But before we started recording, you told me about the criticism that a friend of yours gave of this book. And I could almost anticipate that kind of criticism. It doesn't surprise me because I feel like I hear things like this all the time. So I'd I'd love to... have you repeat that for our listeners and then sure. for us to start there?
0: Yeah, well, our conversation about that was in a broader context of people's complete lack in this culture at this point of interest in understanding much of anything. But I've only <laughs> had one bumper sticker in my life. It's actually, I can almost reach it from here. It's always been in my office for 40 years. And the bumper sticker says, less judgment, more curiosity. But that's that ten- does not tend to be the attitude that we approach things with. And so we tend to polarize things into black and white, right and wrong, good and bad. And so in that environment, men have unfortunately often been painted as perpetrators, wrong and bad. And, and I assume your audience is at least some large proportion psychotherapists. so I'll speak with that in mind. Therapists have unfortunately been among the major perpetrators of this problem. And so we bemoan the fact that men are resistant to psychotherapy, but we created the ideas and the images around psychotherapy. So men perceive psychotherapy as hostile to them, as judgmental and critical of them. And unfortunately, they're often right. And so the pushback against the book has been people who have said to me, they object to a sympathetic portrait of men. They object to my interest in understanding men. And they want to simply paint in a broad brush and say, no, men are the problem. The patriarchy is the problem. We have to re educate men. We have to reprogram them. And I'm like, how are you going to do that if you don't understand men? If we don't work, if you read some of the early seminal therapists, like uh, Dorothy Dinnerstein, who wrote The Mermaid and the Minotaur, which I think is an absolutely brilliant book said the only way the patriarchy is ever going to change is when men start being equally responsible for raising infants. You could change the legislation, you could change the Senate, you could change the Congress, you could change the Supreme Court. None of that's going to work. The patriarchy is only going to change when men start being equally involved in raising children. So that's where it's got to happen. And if if we don't take an interest in understanding men, we're just going to keep pissing and moaning and having the same problems over and over. And that's really the field, the, the, the broader context of the book is we have to get past that polarization and start getting interested in men.
1: You said that a friend of yours even went so far as to say that it was irresponsible of you yes. to publish this book. What was your friend's perspective on that?
0: <laughs> he still says it. Um,
1: What's his argument?
0: His argument is that my work will be used to condone bad behavior on the part of men that people will say, oh, yes, he, he was abusive to her, but it's because he's scared. So we can't blame him. We can't hold him responsible. So the idea of understanding someone, they don't know how to put together compassion and understanding. To them, it's if you work to understanding them, you're just condoning them. Again, you see the same arguments in things like prison reform, like, oh, no, they're bad people, just lock them up. Well, if so that's why people just keep reoffending, because we don't put any effort to understanding how they got in that place to begin with. They're not really people in our minds. They're inmates. And unfortunately, same thing happens with men. And it's not hard to see the results. You know, mortality statistics are going up for men. Everybody in the world is living longer except for middle-aged men whose re- lifespan is getting shorter, not longer.
1: I encountered a very similar uh, pushback against one of my recent Twitter posts on the subject of rejection-sensitive dysphoria. I was providing some psychoeducation on what is rejection-sensitive dysphoria, who experiences it, what does it feel like, what does it look like from the outside, how can it manifest behaviorally, but also what's going on inside, and then what do people who have rejection-sensitive dysphoria need for themselves and from the people who love them, and... Predictably, there were certain people who read this and immediately interpreted just the part of rejection-sensitive dysphoria that can manifest as emotional abuse, right? So, for example, someone with borderline personality disorder who has very little insight and hasn't really developed any coping tools for rejection-sensitive dysphoria can become the sort of person who does things like threaten suicide if someone wants to leave them, right? Um, Now that is just one kind of extreme and, yes, abusive manifestation of what's going on inside for someone who experiences rejection-sensitive dysphoria. Now does the fact that certain people who experience RSD become abusive with it mean that we shouldn't try to understand what's going on for them? What's going on for the people who don't get abusive with it, and what's going on for the people? I think most importantly, who can be rehabilitated. You know, there there's a subset of people who are abusive who can't be rehabilitated. You know, the most antisocial, right. the ones who have to be locked up because they're repeat right. offenders, and have no empathy. But let's take someone with borderline personality disorder who desperately wants love. And they're really struggling to figure out how to have healthy relationships. We have to be able to understand their experience, including their experience of rejection sensitive dysphoria, in order to be able to help them actually change their behavior. But starting from the position that, well, that behavior is bad, so they need to stop it, it's like, right. how's how's that supposed to work? How what what's the alternative if this person right. is acting out an emotional state that they don't know how to control? So I very much understand that position. Yeah. And I think That the argument that you shouldn't say anything about your understanding of an issue because someone else might misinterpret the wisdom you're trying to offer so as to justify bad behavior. It's like, well, you're not justifying bad behavior. I'm not justifying bad behavior. We're trying to see people who engage in bad behavior in in a way that helps us understand them so we can help them, so we can help them change their behavior.
0: (laughs) But but some people are so stubborn. there's an, it's not stubbornness, there's an assumption in what you're saying that you're glossing over, but it's central. And you, the assumption is you're assuming that other people would want to help them, and that's where it breaks down because they don't. So it's, it's, you can understand this in very everyday terms. Anyone who is in a committed, intimate relationship has come to the place where they're really angry and they have to decide whether they're going to try to kill off the other person. I don't mean physically, but emotionally, that's it, you're dead to me, I've had it. But what you're doing, of course, is you're just killing off everything that you're feeling that you're uncomfortable with. And so there's that fork, which goes to like, I am i don't have a problem, you have a problem, you're dead to me. Or as a very famous therapist, Carl Whitaker said, you know, the, the, the litmus test, the pivotal point in any marriage is when you're absolutely convinced that your partner is, is saying, this is the most crazy thing you've ever heard in your life. There's not an ounce of truth in this. She's absolutely out of her mind in that moment, holding your own feet to the fire and saying, okay, well, she's not crazy. She, I don't understand the truth in what she's saying, but there must be something here I'm not understanding. Could you try telling me again? Could you try telling me again in different words? It's, it's that moment that we all understand where we're either gonna demonize a position that's different than ours, or we're gonna find the strength to actually strap in and say, okay, this is really triggering me. I'm really upset about this. I'm very defensive. I'm having a hard time listening, but try saying it to me differently. I'm really gonna do my best. To assume that you have something worthwhile to say, I'm gonna try my best to hear you. And that's the make or break point in any relationship or culture.
1: Do you think some people who are stubborn about this, who would offer these kinds of criticisms themselves have been hurt. Maybe they've they've had to learn how to assert boundaries because maybe they, they were in a point in life for a long time potentially where they were justifying other people's mistreatment of them. They were too compassionate. So they've kind of finally learned boundaries, finally Absolutely. learned to say a spade, is a, spade. a spade is a spade, abuse is abuse. There's no excuse yeah. for it. And then and then they don't kind of see where we're coming from. and I, I want to let those listeners know, I get it and I you know, yeah. I, I think that these can coexist, right? The position of knowing when to call something abuse and walk away and knowing what you're not willing to tolerate can coexist with when you're in situations where you're personally safe and resourced. Yeah. You can we can still do this world bridging work right and it's yeah. it's one thing to be a, a citizen of you know any walk of life but to you know choose to bypass opportunities to learn about people who are different from you or learn about how people are struggling But I think when your profession is to be a psychotherapist as has been your experience for 40 50 years and mine for 10 um, you you don't have that option. you have to make an effort to understand the person right in front of you. Um, And so I think that the more time we spend kind of in this position as therapists, the more, I don't know, um, we kind of drift apart from (laughs) a world full of people who just don't have that same obligation in their daily life.
0: So I want to address two terms you use that I think are really important. One is boundaries and the other is abuse. Boundaries is a term that is profoundly misunderstood in our field currently. So what people think are that boundaries, and and largely have been told by therapists, unfortunately, there are boundaries, a way of keeping you away from me, protecting me from you. But if you think about it just in literal physical terms, a boundary is a place where two people meet. It's not just a place to keep you away from me. It's a place where I meet you. And so when people talk about boundaries, they often really get it wrong and think that they mean defenses, which is something different. Boundaries are like your skin is a boundary. When you have an intimate relationship, an intimate physical relationship with somebody, two boundaries meet and it feels good when you meet somebody at their boundary. It's not an aversive experience. It's not defenses. It's how you have a real connection with somebody is by being inside your skin and knowing where you stop and they start. So the purpose of boundaries is not protection. The purpose of boundaries is connection and intimacy, which leads to the second term you use, which is abuse. I want to recommend a fabulous book called Conflict is Not Abuse by Sarah Shulman, who's at Harvard, I believe. She makes the real, so my definition for a abuse, the difference between anger and abuse. Anger is when, if I'm angry at you, it means that I don't like the way things are going between us and my anger is an indication that I want to work on it, that I want to make it better. If I'm angry at you, I'm telling you, you know, you did this and I didn't really like it and can we talk about it? So the the correct response to anger is to listen harder as opposed to abuse, which is I'm trying to hurt you. And the correct abuse to, response to abuse is to protect yourself. And we conflate the two all the time. And we treat, as Shulman talks about in her book, the first sign of conflict, people start throwing the abuse word around and start armoring themselves and creating defenses when actually somebody is approaching them, trying to work something out with them, and they're cutting it off by So, of course, there is abuse. Of course, relationships can be abusive and you need to protect yourself. But anger and conflict are not abusive.
1: And let's be real. Go ahead. Anger can be very scary to be around. When when we're in the presence of someone who's angry with us, our nervous system can go into fight or flight mode, right? And you know, I some of my training with couples is a interpersonal neurobiology background. So just really looking at what's happening between two nervous systems. And when you're angry, your whole body shows it. And yes. when you're around someone who's angry, your whole body feels it and knows sure. it, right? So, and I and I think this is an important distinction. So, when you say that the correct response to anger is to listen harder, I would I would say yes, and with the caveat to be monitoring yourself and knowing
0: yeah.
1: how much you can stay grounded and how much you can Absolutely. continue to feel safe.
0: Like Absolutely. you talk
1: about the importance of curiosity, right? And we can't be curious when we're in fight or flight mode. Those are Two different states right we can either be in a state where we're emotionally regulated calm present we feel safe and then there's room for curiosity or we can be in a space where we're too elevated we're feeling too much anger or fear and we're not able to remain in that place of curiosity
0: excellent point but now who's responsible when you're triggered in an argument who's responsible for you soothing yourself and being able to continue in the argument. I think you so are.
1: So I'm, I'm guess yeah, I'm guessing that that's where you would go with that. And yeah. I would say, yes, and again, you know, you could say I'm responsible, but I also think that a relationship that two people are choosing to be in, you're, you're choosing someone you, you care about. Right. And that there's a responsibility inherent in that care, inherent in that choice to be with someone that you care about their feelings. And if and and that there's an effort to understand and soothe your partner as well. So I'd say, of it's course, we're,
0: but we're not quite so you're upset. But it can go two ways. You can either expect me to know that what I'm saying will upset you and not say it, or you can take the responsibility to say that upsets me. Could you try saying that a different way? If we go the first way, then I'm not going to be as open with you as I would be otherwise. If I have to worry that what I say will trigger you is politically incorrect, then I just won't speak fully. I won't be myself because I think I'm responsible for your feelings. But if I trust you to talk to me when you're upset about something, then I can be, I can risk being more fully myself. And so absolutely what you said about people being triggered and flooded and all of that, absolutely, which is why in couples therapy, we teach people to learn how to soothe themselves and to speak to their partner when they're flooded and say, this isn't working. I can't do this. We got to find another way of talking about this.
1: I think I might hear you right now bringing up something that would fall under the umbrella of men's fears of women. Do I hear you bringing up, um, Fear that we're passive-aggressive, fear that we as women um, expect the men in our lives to read our minds and know what we uh, want rather than Uh, being uh, direct.
0: I'll tell you a very upsetting question I've been asking women in my practice for the last several years. And that question is, what did you learn from your mom? And I mean, learn as in what she said, how she acted towards your dad, all everything. What did you learn from your mom about men? And mostly what I hear from women almost universally is my mom taught me not to trust men, certainly not to rely on them, not to look for emotional closeness from men, and basically not to expect much from them. Men, it's very sad. As I said, it's a disturbing thing that I learned.
1: And relatable.
0: And men know it, but they, without knowing it. So, men talk all the time about feeling condescended, talked down to, not they say, she doesn't trust me with kids, she micromanages me. Is it all these ways men feel that, but women are not even aware of it by and large? When I ask women that question, they really have to stop and think about it. It's not conscious. But when they stop and think about it, they're like, yeah, my mom taught me not to think much of men. Men know that. On some level, and so absolutely, that kind of dynamic goes on all the time, and it's not a it's not a good guy bad guy thing. It's not like I think women are being (coughs) you know are at fault here or to blame or anything else. I understand why did their mom teach them that about men because that's what their mom's relationship with their dad was probably like was full of disappointments, full of letdowns, full of not being able to count on him. I mean, it didn't come out of thin air. It came out of their lived experience. So I understand that. But then if you are married or partnered to a guy who would like to do better, you have to make room for him to do that. So one of my most common interventions with couples, you know, especially if you get couples with young children, they're just overwhelmed by the work. It's just such a labor intensive period. And they usually have a lot of conflict about child rearing. And the guys will say, I can't ever get it right. If she says, you know, put the diaper on this way and then I do it that way. Then she says, no, it's this way. You know, no, it doesn't matter. I can't get it right. And they have no confidence in themselves as a parent. So I I always suggest, um, did you ever read or have the Mrs. Piggle Wiggle children's books read to you? No, it's a children's book. And it's all about sort of interesting solutions to life problems. So this is what I call my Mrs. Piggle Wiggle solution, which is I send the women away for a weekend. I say, you're going away to a spa for a weekend or to visit your sister or whatever you want to do, and you may not leave instructions, prepare meals in advance, arrange playdates. You may not do anything. You are going to leave, and you can call and see how he's doing, but you can't help. And what happens on the weekend is that the men figure it out. When they're not being supervised, when they're not worried about somebody peering over their shoulder, they figure out how to put the diaper on, because they have to, because there's no one else there. They figure out how to get the kid to eat dinner and how to get the kid to sleep and all that. And the mom comes back and they're like, first of all, of course, they've had a great weekend. But they come back with the possibility of a partnership evident. And I'm like, oh, well, he does it differently than I do it. But, you know, the kids seem okay, And maybe he could do it his way and I could do it my way.
1: I love that. I think that's a great intervention, right? Because
0: it, it works by the time
1: by the time a woman, I mean, you're describing a situation in which a couple has small children, and by the time things are at that point, you know, she's probably gone a few years without a full night's sleep. She's oh, been yeah. in 24/7 mom mode. And she's when you're in 24/7, gone a few
0: years, right? She's gone a few years. He's sleeping through the night.
1: Right. And having, which can not, lead to
0: resentment. You're getting up every night. How can you not resent the person who's lying next to you who's sleeping through it?
1: Absolutely. So what I tell men is
0: let me just what I tell men is you have to be the one to get up in the middle of the night, not because you're going to earn brownie points with your wife, but because it's the only time you're going to get alone time with your kids. It's precious. It's the most precious time of the day. You should jump up out of bed when the baby cries and be the first one there because you'll you'll never regret it.
1: If you were to come to me as a client and tell me you were feeling grumpy, irritable, lethargic, stressed out, or unfocused, I'd wanna do a thorough assessment of your lifestyle. And one of the first elements we'd look at is the quality and quantity of your sleep. You need at least a good seven hours of refreshing sleep every night in order to be your best self. There are many things that can get in the way of that. A demanding job, a new baby, or just plain bad habits, for example. But if you're having difficulty falling or staying asleep for the simple reason that you're too hot, you're too cold, or you and your partner don't agree on the temperature, look no further. I have just the thing for you. And since this is not therapy, but a podcast, I can actually sell you stuff. So I'm going to genuinely recommend that you check out the pod pro cover by eight sleep. It's the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. Personally, I have mine set to run on autopilot so that my bed is warm when I get in, cool in the middle of the night, and warm again when it's time to wake up. I sleep very soundly this way. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being, the quality of your work, and the lives of the people you touch. So go to eightsleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout for up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And to my listeners around the world, Eight Sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the United Kingdom, select countries in the European Union, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. So you're really advocating to bring balance into relationships, right? These moms who are overworked, who need a break, who desperately need a spa day and a full night's sleep, get them out of that mindset. And then they can actually see clearly what are priorities again. I want to kind of put it this way, right? Because when we're in go mode and we don't get a chance to turn off and rewind and reset, everything feels equally urgent. And we lose the ability to, from a fresh perspective, discern what's urgent what's important. And so of course mm-hmm. the fact that your husband doesn't do something around the house or with the kids the same way that you do it feels equally urgent and important yes. to you know your work emails or anything else. And I think women need that reset to be able to see, oh, you know what, it really doesn't matter. I put the cups in the cabinet this way, he puts the cups in the cabinet that way, the point is the dishes are away. <laughs>
0: From the cabinet. Right. So I'm going to say it a little differently in one part, but I think it's an important distinction. I I don't hear women complaining about how much work they have to do. I hear them complaining about being responsible for everything so that often what you hear men say is, well, I help. And that's exactly what women are upset about, is that they act like they're an employee, not like a partner. And what the weekend away does is it creates the possibility that they could approach it as partners, not as not as one person supervising another, which how could that not create resentment on both parts? Absolutely. But as partners like, well, he took care of everything for the weekend, so he must be capable. Why am I supervising him and watching over him Mm -hmm. when obviously he can do it? I've been telling myself he can't and he's been telling himself he can't, now we both know that's not true.
1: Right, I used air quotes when I heard you say, well, I help because I'm thinking, yeah, the term help implies that you're helping someone else. And really this is your home, this is your family, your life. Yes. I think another problem, and, and maybe you can offer some concrete solutions for our listeners on this one, I'm sure you see this all the time, where there's this attitude that men have of, well, I help or, um, you know, what goes along with that is just tell me what you want me to do. Right. So then women feel like they're in this position that's a double bind because on the one hand, we don't want to nag. We don't want to be the manager of the household. We don't want to be the one doing all the mental labor of tracking the 500 things that need to be done every day. And men are saying this thing that sounds so positive. Oh, just tell me what you want done and I'll do it. But it puts us in the position of being the one who, the one who has to track and give orders. Yes. Um, how, how do you, how do you help couples navigate that differently? Because it seems like the, the main overarching thing that women want in that situation is for him to not need to be asked for him to get it and take initiative and take ownership.
0: Be a partner. Well, I think the weekend away, I think the weekend away is a tremendous step in that direction. But, you know, I'm listening to your language very carefully, because when you describe the position for women, it's most of the story, but it's not quite the whole story, which is, again, remember, women have been mostly taught by their mothers to not trust men or think a lot of them. So part of the reason that they that they put themselves and so they, they don't like being the one in charge, but they are a part of ending up in that position because they don't trust their partner to step up. And so, of course, he won't. As long as you don't think he will, he won't. And until you're willing to take the radical risk of seeing if he will, like, you know what? I'm not going to get a Christmas present from him for the kids this year. I'm going to tell him I'm not doing it. I'm going to tell him I'm going to give him a month's notice. Tell him he's got a month to get Christmas presents, his own presents for the kids. And if he doesn't, then then the kids are not going to get Christmas presents from their dad. But I'm going to let that happen. I'm going to let, I'm going to give him, I'm going to get out of the way and give him the opportunity to step up and not always be in, I'm not going to remind him. I'm not going to give him a note. I'm not going to send him links with gifts. I'm not going to tell the kids to go talk to him and tell him what they want. I'm just going to tell him and then I'm going to get out of the way. And that's hard to do.
1: I can see this advice being exactly the medicine for certain couples. And I can also hear certain women screaming back at you just because of of my experience helping couples where, you know, I, I feel like I've worked with a fair number of couples as well as women individually who feel like they've tried all that. They've really tried to be hands off. They've tried requesting things in every way. They've tried just letting, you know, Trusting that he's capable, giving the benefit of the doubt, um, and there's just this sense of bashing their head against the wall at this point because it feels like there's no possible way out of all the different ways they've tried to get their husband to just kind of step up, recognize what needs to be done, even, you know, appreciate and respond positively to her efforts to give him space or compliment the things that he does well or any of that.
0: So, what I would say to that woman is, you remember that weekend you went away and you came home and the house was clean and the kids were fed and in clean clothes? How'd that happen? If he's as incapable as you have convinced yourself that he is, and if it's true that he won't step up as you've convinced yourself, then how did he get by that weekend? And to him, I would say, you've convinced yourself that you're not capable. But what happened on that weekend? The house was clean, the kids were fed.
1: Okay, what about the couple where she comes back? And the kids have been eating mac and cheese and staying up till 10. And there are piles and piles of laundry everywhere. I
0: I would say good start. And now let's figure, I would say good start. Good for you. Good for you, the woman, for not pitching a fit about that. And good for you, the man. Not, you know, didn't exactly hit it out of the park, but at least you got on base. At least you started. You made an effort. Let's try again. How about 2 months from now? Let's try again and talk about negotiate what things you might like to see done during that weekend. But, you know, reinforce it. Good start.
1: I can just hear people groaning, but I don't want to get cuz cuz I think I think there's so many couples and there are people for whom all of these situations apply. And more, but let's kind of back up and zoom out because I think we dove straight in, in the middle. You know, yes, I wanted we to start with that controversy because sure. what you told me before we started recording about your friend's pushback, I, I just thought was so um, relevant to a lot that's been on my mind that it expands beyond the boundaries of this conversation. And then we jumped into some of men's particular fears, but let's kind of zoom out and sure. start from the beginning, right? So yeah. your work largely centers around men's fears of women in intimate yeah. relationships. And you've said that, um, you get a lot of pushback from women who really don't want to see it or have, or having a hard time seeing the things that frustrate them about their husbands, boyfriends, and so on.
0: Um,
1: they have a hard time seeing it in terms of fear or in terms of the specific fears that you describe. So what would you describe are some of the core fears that you're talking about here?
0: Sure. Let me, let me sort of lead up to that by saying why women don't believe it. Women don't believe it because we've sold you a bill of goods. Because men are socialized to, um, it, this, there's a whole uh, interesting field of research on what's called fragile masculinity. And the idea behind it is that women experience themselves as female and as girls and as women, not something that just, it's innate. You're born that way, you are that way, you don't have to do anything to earn it. Men are socialized to see masculinity as something that has to be earned and defended at all costs. And mostly in our culture, we define masculinity not as something to aspire to, but as something to avoid, which is feminine. And so masculinity is defined as not feminine. So men are always on guard against any indication that somebody might see something they do as feminine. There's a wonderful story of this book by Judy Chu called When Boys Become Boys. She followed a group of kindergarten and first grade boys. And at the end of the school year, the teacher said, everybody gets to pick one of the songs we learned this year and leave the class in it. And one little boy goes up to the beginning of the class and he starts singing a lullaby. And all of his friends in the front row start mocking him. He stops and he says, oh, I was just kidding. That's not my favorite song. That's a girl's song and then start singing the Marine Corps Anthem. So even at six years old, this little boy understood very well that anything that our culture thinks of as or defines as feminine is going to get him mocked and humiliated and teased as not masculine by his friends. So a lot of men's fears or women are around this fragile masculinity. It's around feeling as if their sense of themselves as a man is threatened by women because we define vulnerability, being emotionally open, sharing, intimacy, all those things go on the feminine side of the ledger. And so when men engage in any of those behaviors, which are obviously critically important for an intimate relationship, they're always bumping up against all of their training that those things are not masculine and therefore they're not a man. And so men behave one way when other people are watching and another way when they're not and there are there are basically there's a, a crossroads or a fork in every relationship in every heterosexual relationship where men enter the relationship and they realize that they are not as experienced in intimate relationships as their female partner and it goes one of two ways either they're smart and they say oh you know what I'm really at a disadvantage here. But fortunately, the person next to me knows a lot more about it than I do. I could learn a lot from her and be a lot closer and happier. So I'm going to, in the privacy of my own home, learn about closeness and intimacy from this woman. Or the other fork, which is I'm going to spend my life with this person defending against her attempts to get closer to me because they're threatening to me because they make me feel less masculine. And relationships go one of two ways with predictable outcomes. And so, finally, to come to your question, um, I won't run through. I think there are seven fears that men have of women. The the most recognizable ones are men are are typically afraid of women dominating and controlling them. Women are afraid of uh, men are afraid of women's emotions because of the feelings that they stir up in men themselves. Men are afraid of being trapped in commitment by women. Men are afraid of being responsible for women, responsible financially, sexually, and emotionally for women. And the the deeper underlying unconscious fears are men are afraid of abandonment and being on their own. And men, men are afraid of being feminized. Men are afraid of either feeling their own feminine aspects or being seen by others as being identified as feminine by others.
1: Okay. Let's go through these. So men are afraid of women dominating and controlling Mm -hmm. them. Again, I can hear certain types of listeners in what they start thinking and how they react to that. You know, the, there's a certain type of feminist that goes, that's impossible. That's BS. Men are the ones that dominate and control women. Obviously, they're the physically stronger of the sexes. They historically have held most of the financial and legal power. Men have used their power to control women in all of these different ways, right? right. And I just, I want to, I feel like I need to speak that listener's perspective because um, not because I agree, not because I entirely disagree either. Um, just because I'm kind no, of tuned right. how different people think.
0: They're absolutely right. What, what you're saying is absolutely true in every setting in the world other than the home.
1: Well, and, and, home- and in the home, when you look at domestic abuse, right. But, but this is where I want to make room for a both and, right. I want okay, to say the listeners, so yes, so I- not
0: me. So let's get into it. Who initiates yeah. more acts of violence in heterosexual relationships, men or women? It's women in over 200 studies. Hmm. Now, if you really wanna start a fight somewhere, bring that little tidbit of information up. So I can see the true. YouTube
1: comments now.
0: Look it up, <laughs> look it up, there are over 200 studies. Now, women initiate violence that is less severe. When men initiate violence, it's more likely to, you're more likely to end up in a hospital. But not only do women initiate more violence in relationships, but <clears throat> women's level of, it's hard to get this straight, so tell me if I got it right. Women's, women do less to inhibit their physical violence in relationships than men. Men are aware that it is not appropriate and that mm-hmm. there will be consequences. And so they are less violent in their intimate relationships than they are their relationships outside of the home, where women are about the same because they don't experience it as something that there would be consequences for. And so when you delve down into it, you find actually that it is not just a one-sided equation.
1: So I can believe that. Um, mm. And, you know, I think that part of male socialization, as I understand it, uh, and this doesn't mean that it happens properly for all men, but part of, the normal or expected trajectory of male socialization is understanding your power, understanding that you're the stronger sex, understanding yeah. um, that it's people of your sex who have raped and murdered women, um, yes. understanding that you know one wrong move and now you're a father, or one wrong move, uh, which could include simply choosing the wrong woman um, and you're accused of rape. That. I'm not saying that rape allegations are all false. Some of them are some of the time, yes. right? So of it's course. my understanding that as a man, if you're raised properly, you get an understanding of that. Plus you have much higher rate levels of testosterone and yeah. you're, you're more physically prone to experience aggressive urges. And so you, you have to learn how to wield them. Yeah. Um, and women don't, we don't go through that same socialization. Um, and then when we're in intimate relationships and stuff gets stirred up, um, whatever that might be, those, those violent urges can come out. And I could see that coming out if a woman has a trauma history, I could see that coming out if there is something not so great happening in the current relationship. And I can also see that coming out in relationships where actually the woman feels very safe with this man and it's because she feels safe. In fact, maybe yeah. he's a lot bigger and stronger than her. Yep. And there's something about not worried about hurting his, him. Yep. Yeah. Something about him feeling safe plus a combination of whatever's getting stirred up through the intimate relationship yep. where she lashes out.
0: Yep. I, I think you're you're going to a very what's going to be a very helpful segue because you're you're touching on what is, I think, the most common pattern of conflict between men and women. And it's a great way of me explaining to your listeners how men's fears play it. So that the violence often happens when women initiate violence in a relationship. It's usually because they've tried everything else they can think of, and none of it has worked to get a response. And then violence is the level that they're pretty sure will get his attention. And not, not to be clear, experience. to
1: a certain type of listener, just to be clear, we're not advocating for oh, or me. condoning no. violence. No. Well, we're not saying you. that's an excuse for violence. Not a good, not I, a good
0: strategy. Not a good. So, but I here's how. I, tr-
1: I wish that I trusted my audience to be charitable no, in their no, interpretations no, I, I of things all the time, but I can't. So,
0: but here, here's yes, what but, happens. So go ahead. Typical heterosexual couples conflict. So the woman will make an approach to the man. So women are more likely when something's not going well in a relationship, it is likely that the woman will notice it first. Why? She's a lot more experienced in intimate relationships than men do, um, which I can go into if you want to, but, but she's more likely to notice. So she's more likely to bring it up, but she knows from past experience that if she brings it up directly and says, you know, it seems like we're not talking as much as we used to, that he will feel that to be a criticism. So in working with as many men as I do, the word I hear more often than any other word coming out of men's mouths when they talk about their relationships is I feel criticized. It's it's what men feel often, or they think actually, that they're being criticized. So the woman makes what she thinks of as an emotional approach honey, let's talk about this so we can be closer. But he hears it as a criticism. So she's making an approach to get closer. And what is the number one defense of most guys is to withdraw emotionally. So men are, the woman makes an approach, they feel defensive. And what men know to do when they feel uncomfortable is to tamp down their feelings. So not only is she not getting the connection she wants, it made it worse she approaches and tries to get closer and he pulls further back. So what does the woman do? She gets louder. Either literally in volume or in her behavior or whatever, she escalates and gets more upset. The man gets more scared, more defensive and withdraws further. But the women interpret the men's withdrawal. They don't see that he's scared doesn't occur to them that he's scared. They think he's just being a jerk. Like I keep trying to get through to you. I've tried everything I can think of to get you to talk to me. And it just keeps getting worse and worse. You won't give an inch. I'd like to read you a quote from a woman in a workshop on men's spirits of women about her learning about this. She said, I understand that my husband has not been ignoring, dismissing, or hurting me out of a lack of respect, as I suspected, but that he's scared. He's scared to hurt me. He's scared to mess up with me. He's scared to not be enough. I had honestly never imagined that he was scared and that I was so profoundly important to him that he was constantly terrified I would leave him.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So when women understand that all the behaviors they're frustrated by are largely driven by fear. It changes their perspective on what's going on between them. They start softening their approach and the men start feeling like maybe they could talk about, you know, when you come at me like that, it's too much. I get, I get all a and defensive. And could you just like, lower your voice a little or hold my hand while you talk to me or or start out by telling me you're not mad at me, something to help me mm. kind of hang in there with you. Once they understand that that's what's going on, it can really profoundly change things.
1: And by the way, for the therapists in the audience, if you, if you haven't learned this yet, um, part of what you just shared, Avram, is a really great technique to use in couples therapy, which is just to reframe the behavior as an expression of your, you care about this person so much. I've I've seen couples respond so positively to that yeah. when I just reframe anything uh, yeah. that one partner does as an expression of you care about her so much that you're worried that this will hurt right. her, or yeah. it's because you, you know, that that reframe tends to help a lot.
0: Yeah, I mean, she and says, "I had no idea that I was so profoundly important to him."
1: yeah do you think also, when it comes to fears of domination and control between the sexes, that you know, it's just so obvious how men can be scary um, they are the physically stronger sex that yeah. you know, they commit six times the crime, something like that. um, you know, men are responsible for the vast majority of rapes and murders and violent crimes, but um, do you think that women tend to have a blind spot regarding how we can be perceived as scary because we're not absolutely. scary in the same way that men oh, are? Absolutely. We're not physically intimidating.
0: Yeah. When I say to a man, you know, I think you might be scared of your partner, I get the same reaction every time. First, they they bow up, and they get defensive. Oh, I'm not scared, and then within literally sixty seconds, almost every man I've ever spoken with is gone. Huh? That might make some sense. Can you tell me more about that? When you tell women that their partner might be afraid of them, they think you have lost your mind. They really think that that is the the strangest, most ridiculous suggestion they've ever heard. And it really takes some convincing. But one of the things I say to them is, because they'll say exactly what you said, you know, they're in charge and everything goes their way. I'm like, okay, in a broad picture, right? Why does one person try to control another? Why does one person try to dominate another? They only do that when they're scared of them. If I'm not scared of you, why would I try to control you? You're not a threat to me. There's no reason to control. So when you see your husband engaging in these controlling, dominating behaviors, you might ask yourself that question. I wonder what he's threatened of. I wonder why he feels the need to do that. And that's a way to help them understand.
1: And you listed domination and control as the first in in your list of fears that men have Mm -hmm. of women. So help our listeners understand the nature of men's fears that women will dominate and control them.
0: Sure. Why is it that the worst thing one man can say to another is that he's pussy whipped? Why is it the worst thing you can say to a man? On the first level, we see You're controlled by women. But if you think about it a little more, what they're saying is you're controlled by your need of women. Pussy whipped, meaning that you let your wife tell you what to do because you need her for sex, is what they're saying. You put up with being controlled because you need her. You need her vagina, is what that saying means. And so men's, it's it's an accusation of being feminine. It's an accusation of being dependent on women, and so that is the I think one of the clearest evidence of men's you know almost paranoid fears about being controlled by women. Again, if you if you felt powerful and uh, enabled, you wouldn't be afraid about other people trying to control you. But there there's there's external control and there's internal control. And it's no question that men have most of the power and control in external situations. But in intimate, interpersonal situations, it's a very different story. There's a great line. Did you ever see the movie uh, My Big Fat Greek Wedding? Remember that movie? It's a good movie, rom-com. And the daughter is, is lambasting her mother saying, <clears throat> you know, dad's the ha- head of the household and you let him boss you all around. She says, I want to tell you, your father is the head of the household and I'm the next. And whichever way the neck turns, the head has to fall. So women have always had power in families. They, just, they take power in the way that disempowered people take it, which is um, subtly, uh, less visibly, not direct challenge, but running things underneath the surface. So again, research, which might surprise you, is that most of the decisions in heterosexual families are made by women, not by men including decisions about things that you wouldn't think women get to make the decisions about, including decisions about spending, budget, vacation, all kinds of things, the majority of heterosexual couples report that women make most of the decisions in their family. So again, that's not the stereotype. That's not how we but the world that people actually live in, that is actually how things run. And that has a lot to do with what we were talking about earlier when men defer because they don't really feel like they know, you know, you're going to decide where the kid's going to go to school the men are like, I don't I don't know, I don't know what he needs. And they're like, you decide.
1: As a therapist, I've gotten an up close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out. Turns out it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well being, like diet and exercise but as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. People often set goals that are too lofty, only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organifi makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water. 100% organic with no added sugar, and it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and 3 grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving your cells the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at organifi.com. That's spelled O R G A N I F I.com. And use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you. I want to ask how you think that control plays out. But I have a story that's kind of a an example of this. Okay, um, go. Love to hear it. I don't want to share too much that's too personal. But um, when I first met my partner by the way i'm I'm so thinking about my most critical listeners today because i've just been dealing with so much of their shit lately yeah i'm sorry (laughs) and and i have listeners who don't like me using the term partner i'm supposed to either call him my boyfriend which feels way too casual and immature for me or my (laughs) husband which he's not and it's nobody's business why he's not my husband yet um you're
0: right about that
1: yeah but um anyway my partner my well, significant about we, other how about call we try him to
0: forget about them and just say myself? How yeah, about we try? Yeah no to i put just i'm just, just talk. i'm just
1: talking back to those folks today because they've <laughs> been they've been uh, relentless with the comments lately. But um my partner my significant other when we first met which was not in a, in a dating context he asked me Uh, he, he kind of said, you know, I'm, I'm single and I've just been starting to look on the apps and stuff. And what, what do you think about dating a therapist? Is that a bad idea? And he, and and I kind of.
0: Was he asking for himself or you?
1: No, he was asking me as a therapist, whether it was a bad idea to date a therapist, because as, as his thought process unfolded, we have an unfair advantage in the communication department. Mm -hmm. Now, what does this tell you, right, about his fears right. and where he was right. coming from? Absolutely. The the idea Great that story. the idea that someone who's more skilled in the verbal and emotional department would not would be an him. asset as a partner, right. exactly. but yeah, exactly, exactly, would use that in a way to hurt and take yep. from him. Take and, and so right. I, I kind of teased him. Yeah. I teased him, and and I. And I uh, eventually said, "Are you asking me out?" And then he went, "No, no, 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 no." And I was like, "Oh, well, you could." And he was like, "Well, uh, well I'm not out, I'm not not asking you out." <laughs> so that was how we <laughs> <That's> met. <laughs> but I think it, I, I think it just illustrates this point about the fear that the more communicative and, frankly, yes. often more emotionally intelligent of the yep. sexes would use our ability to to be more verbal and expressive in a way to dominate and control rather than bringing that Absolutely. as a gift to a relationship.
0: It's a great story. And I'm sorry to tell you that you are not unique in that story. And you don't have to be a therapist for that to be true. That is true in almost every single heterosexual relationship. Because as Carol Gilligan brilliantly taught us, we start out in same-sex peer groups. Boys play with girls. And then somewhere around grade school, the girls start playing with the girls and the boys start playing with the boys. Okay? The boys are practicing in their play, dominating and controlling the world. So boys play sports and games of competition. Rarely will you see boys playing with each other. No matter what they're playing with, it turns into competition. They are practicing to be in the work world and dominate and control. What do the, the girls do when they're playing with each other? They practice relationships. They play games. They play fantasy games. They play house. They play school. They play doctor nurse. They play games that have people in them in relationships and they're practicing and learning about relationships. So when then they come back together after puberty and get interested in each other. We don't know what you're talking about. You have way more competence. And and that's why I'm talking about that crossroad in the relationship. Smart guys accept that and they don't fight it. And they say, well, if I want the kind of intimacy in a relationship that I want, Um, I probably could learn a lot from her, but there is always that problem of, can you take that in as a benefit to you? Or are you going to be defensive and feel like you have to guard against it? That's a a perfect illustration of exactly what happens. And the the gap is real.
1: And how can we help men have more of that positive or constructive attitude about it? I, I wonder you know cuz i often advise my couples to name each other's strengths more often you know to positively reframe express appreciation things like that and i wonder if even saying just i'm i'm so impressed and honestly intimidated by your social skills um or by how how good you are at, at finding the right words for your feelings or knowing what it is that you need for me and and I'm daunted because I can't keep up. I don't feel like I have your same level of self-awareness. I don't feel like I have your same level of verbal skills or emotional intelligence. But, honey, I admire and adore that about you. And it brings strengths to your friendships. It brings strengths to your parenting. Um, but also, please have patience with me, because I I'm, I i don't get it.
0: <laughs> I think that is the unwritten script in most successful marriages, or the unspoken mm. script in most successful marriages. That, that's exactly what happens. Um, in the book, part of the this, the book that I'm really most proud of, <clears throat> there there are uh, the last three chapters of the book are sort of more hands-on practical. There's a chapter on men doing their work, women, chapter on women doing their work, and a chapter for couples together. The men's chapter says to guys, um, you're going to need to learn how to talk to other men about this before you're ready to talk to women about it. Hmm. So what you're suggesting, the conversation that you outline, I think is step two. It's a very important step and it's critically important, but step one is men talking to other men and learning how to be more emotionally fluent. And so I have a set of guidelines in the book for men to gather in groups with other men, start by reading the book together, because I think it's a good prompt, sort of like a book club, and then keep meeting when you're done talking about the book, keep meeting once a month, and learn how to talk with other men about what's going on in your inner world. Learn to get more fluent in talking about your own inner emotional life. And then you'll learn how, then you will be more of a peer and more of a partner to your partner. And But I think men have to, it's been a huge shock to me. I started running men's groups about 10 years ago And I remember distinctly the night before I'm standing in the outside, ready to go into the room. And I thought this is by far the worst idea I've ever had as a therapist running a group for men. This is going to be so tedious and so awful. I'm going to, they're going to talk about sports and politics and business. (coughs) I'm going to have to pull teeth, (coughs) excuse me, to get them to talk about anything personal. Well, The second group, I think guys were embracing at the end of the group, talking about loving each other and rescheduling the meeting so that we could meet more often, so they would not overlap with my vacation schedule. In the first two or three groups, that's what was happening in the room. And the huge learning for me was, we think that men are emotionally withholding and emotionally crippled and not able and not interested in all that. It's not true. Men are dying to talk about what's going on with themselves. They're just terrified of you. And so it's not gonna happen in a relationship, well, it's not gonna start in a relationship with a woman. They've got to learn how to do it with other men before they'll be ready to do it with women. And that's the missing piece that I think for a lot of couples is they're trying to go to step two. I don't think it's gonna work. Now, that could be individual therapy for the guy. That would be another way to learn do that but i think group has a lot more benefit for men uh, in this regard in terms of emotional fluency because in a group you get to watch other people do it
1: when you when you say that they're terrified of us how can women be less terrifying for men without abandoning ourselves and our authentic truth
0: i love that question especially that you added the second half to it thank you um i really I don't wanna minimize the question, but I think if if women just understood that you are, it would probably be 90% of the answer to your question. I think once women know that men are scared, it really, just the knowledge of that is really transformative. It really changes so much so that you might then in a conversation, if your partner shuts down, you might, instead of angrily pursuing him, you might back up a little bit. You might say, oh, I remember that therapist told me that when he withdraws, I should maybe try not pursuing, but maybe back up a little bit and see if he'll come forward. So practically, things like that. But I think just understanding that is by itself very powerful.
1: And for women who have insecure attachment, for women who have their own fears of abandonment, do you think that there's a blind spot or or any any insecurities really about their worth, about appearance or whatever, you know, do you think that our insecurities, whether they're insecurities about ourselves, insecurities about how people are going to treat us, um, contribute to us having a blind spot about just how important we are to the men in our lives?
0: That's really interesting question. I've never thought about it quite that way before because I mostly think about that women are confused about it because men are so adamant that you not know we're scared but I think you're making a really good point. And I would say that I would just replace the word women with human and say that any human being who makes an overture to be closer with someone else and sees them withdraw rather than respond is going to feel a little insecure. It's not a good feeling. Um, You know, if you approach your partner and say, honey, what do you you think? Would you like to make love tonight? And they go, well, no, I'm not really in the mood. That's not so easy to feel good about yourself, man, woman, human. It's just if you're if you're consistently making approaches for intimacy and feel rebuffed and you can't find a way it'd be really challenging to not take that on in a way that where you start to doubt yourself. You'd be a pretty strong person to not go there.
1: You also mentioned that one of the seven fears is women's um, men's fears of women's emotions because of how our emotions stir up emotions in them. Can you explain that yes. further?
0: I sure can. I think anyone listening recognizes this argument in which the woman starts with more emotion than the man and the man becomes more focused on getting the woman to be less emotional than he is what they're arguing about. So men keep saying things like, just just be rational. Stop being so emotional. Just calm down. Don't be hysterical. And we wonder why, why are men so preoccupied with keeping the argument rational. Well, it's not, I think some people misunderstand that and say, well, it's just another form of power and control. They're trying to control women's natural expressiveness. I think what it's really about is that we're not as well equipped emotionally and not as well experienced. And so when the argument becomes more emotional, it's like we switch from a home game to an away game, right? We went from feeling confident and secure To feeling like, I don't know how to play in this game. Who's got the rules? Uh, I don't understand the rules. Nobody give me the rules. I don't know what to do. And so they're just trying to get it back to their home field. They're just trying to get it back to the territory. So they're they're trying to control their partner's emotional expression. But what they're really trying to do is control their own emotional reactivity. They are flooded being in relationship with somebody who's having strong feelings and they don't know what to do. And yeah. so clearly the answer is not to teach women to be less emotional, but to teach men to be less frightened of their own feelings.
1: And maybe some uh, better ability to differentiate which is it that I'm really reacting to. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm remembering a couple session I've had recently, and and really this could be any couple. Um, but, you know, I there's definitely been many occasions that I've been working with a couple where... Um, or, and this happens in families too. It happens between parents and children. It can happen any way with the sexes. It can happen in gay or lesbian couples. Um, but where, but I do think it's common, especially for for this particular, um, you know, the sex differences to go this way, um, where the the woman, like you're saying, is expressing emotion and the man gets scared because of how it makes him feel to see her yes. emotional or of, like yeah. you say, what it brings up in him. And one technique I've used in situations like that is to help him remember how strong she is. Um, because I, I think that this is a paradox um, for for many men in relationships that their wives or girlfriends can be so emotive and maybe even so emotionally dysregulated yes um or at least seemingly emotionally dysregulated as it appears to them that that they can have such that capacity and at the same time be so resilient yes and so and i've seen this in couples for instance where let's say the woman has a lot of trauma and cuz i i see this pairing a lot it's a very common pairing where a woman who has a lot of trauma and emotional reactivity pairs up with a guy with a really Stable temperament. She finds him grounding, calming to be around. He Absolutely. finds her exciting and stimulating. Absolutely. Right. And and so they balance each other out a lot of the time. But that doesn't mean that there are Except
0: no right.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, because right. oftentimes she has kind of a higher tolerance for emotional reactivity. And yes. for him, you know she might be expressing herself and feeling like she's at a four on a scale exactly. of one to 10. Exactly. And in his He's system, it him. feels like a nine, right? Exactly. So that's one strategy I use is kind of helping each person recognize how, what's the amplitude of this emotion for me? And what is my threshold of how much amplitude yep. I can personally handle? And then helping him remember, like, you know, you married this woman because After all she's been through, she has like three degrees and, you know, she raised amazing kids and, you know, look at, look at everything that, look at all the evidence for how much you can trust that she's going to be okay no matter what. And how does remembering how strong she is help you kind of recalibrate to whether she can indeed tolerate this emotion and how much of your reaction to her emotional expression is coming from any legitimately justified fear that she can't handle something right now versus the sense that maybe you can't handle it. Or maybe the reason things have spiraled out of control between you in the past is precisely because you're trying to control it. Whereas if you just kind of let her have that expression, she'll come around to being fine. And if you stop trying to kind of force your coping tools onto her, you'll give her that opportunity to right. bring all the coping tools that you know she actually has if you step back and think about it.
0: And there's a reason that men are trying to force their coping skills on their partners, which is the f- that men are socialized to believe that they are in charge and responsible. And so right. f- the, another layer of what we're talking about is when, since men are responsible for women in terms of how they've been raised to believe that time a woman is upset about anything, for a man, that's a failure. That means I am, if you're upset, even if it's not about me, you're upset because the curtains don't match. I failed to provide you with curtains that match. You know, you're upset that our kids are uh, getting a C in math. You know, it's all back on me since it's all up to me. And so you're upset, even if it's not with me, is an indictment of my adequacy as a man. And so, of course, then men, you know, women always complain that men are trying to fix their problems. They're trying to solve their problems to shore up their own sense of adequacy.
1: So what reassurance can people offer each other? Because I can imagine, I can imagine a woman really hearing this and taking to heart, learning to say to the man in her life, oh, honey, it's not your fault. It's not your responsibility. I'm just venting to you about this thing that bothers me because you're my best friend. And I love They've talking done. to you about what's on my mind.
0: So I have a very simple trick I teach people. And, and I offer it to you and your listeners. And you won't believe how much it changes your life. And it's so simple. I've learned at the start of almost every conversation with my wife to say, excuse, "What? just hold on a second. Is this was one of those conversations where you want my help fixing something? Or this is one of those conversations where you just want me to listen? Because I've learned that I'm wrong more than half the time that I'm going down the thinking she wants me to fix something, but she just wants me to listen, or I think she wants, but I'm wrong most of the time. And if I just ask on the front end, then it's a huge relief for me because I don't have to try to figure out what to do. It's pretty simple. I just ask. And as she says, well, I'd really like your help solving this. Well, that's great because that's my strong suit. I'm a guy and I know how to do that. So then I don't have to worry about being all empathic and listening up because she just wants to figure out what to do about this problem at work. But more often she says, no, I really just want you to hear me and be there with me. And It's like, okay, well, I don't have to get distracted trying to figure out how to solve the problem. I just need to listen. I can do that. It's an unbelievably helpful. And it feels a little funny, you know, just to ask that, but boy, you can save yourself a lot of heartache with that simple question.
1: I'm thinking too about how there there might be times in situations like that where what she needs specifically is a sounding board who knows her right that that's that's kind of a big love language so to speak is the feeling yeah. that your partner has this you know to put it in Gottman terms love maps that the, your partner has yeah. a good love map of you they know your preferences and I'm thinking about all the situations in which. Women express what they want indirectly. Yes. Men don't get it. And nope. then women are offended when men right. disagree. You know, so a woman might say, Would you like to go for a walk with me? And what she really means yeah. is, I would like to go for a walk with he, you. Please he, come. He thinks, she and, thinks
0: she's asking if he then he maybe he's getting a little weight. He needs some exercise. Right.
1: Right, and and he right. and he asks himself, "Do I want to go for a walk?" And the answer is no. Right, right? right. and then she exactly. hears that exactly. as you don't want to spend quality time with me.
0: Exactly. So there, so there, I think really, many that's times really, that's another advantage to doing that. I'm glad you brought that up because I hadn't mm-hmm. mentioned it. It helps the woman to get clearer for herself what she really wants. That yeah. question is not just to help the man understand; it helps the speaker, man or a woman. Mm-hmm. You can then you stop and think. You know, well, what, is, what do I want here? Which is also even more enormously helpful. And so he might, she says, would you like to go for a walk for me? He could say, are, are you wanting to just go for a walk? Or is this because you want to hang out together? And she has to stop and think. And she would probably then realize, well, I want to hang out together. And he might say, well, I don't really feel like walking, but you want to like sit and have a cup of tea together? You know, like, right. now we're going somewhere.
1: Yeah. And so it can help us to learn to express what we want more directly, but also, and this isn't where I was originally going with this, but to another tangent that's coming up is I'm thinking about, especially again, if we talk about those first few years of child rearing, when mm. a woman's in mom mode 24 seven, um, it, it's been my observation that she can go long periods of time, pretty dissociated from her body. And that's adaptive yeah. because, Absolutely. you know, if she were aware of how she was feeling, she would. Not be changing that diaper, she'd be in bed right now. Right. Um, right. But, you know, I think men get frustrated with women for being so indirect and indecisive. yes, um, yes. but especially when we're overworked, um, I think it's important to bear in mind for for men and women alike that we're not aware of what we want. We really aren't. and we're we're using our partners as a sounding board. Or we're expressing what we want indirectly for feedback as part of a process of even trying mm. to figure out, wait, what kind of food does sound good? Because right now I don't, you know, I'm sorry I can't make a direct yeah. request. It's I actually don't know. And so I think where I was originally going, though, was that sometimes I think instead of needing our partners to solve our problems for us or give us advice, what we're really looking for is a sounding board who remembers our preferences. You know, we're looking yeah. for that. Um, yes well, I know you love Indian and you haven't had it in a while. Um, So maybe that's what would sound good to you right now.
0: But see, it then becomes a collaborative venture. It's no longer two people trying to, in the dark, figure each other out. It's two people who are talking to each other, and they will figure it out if they talk to each other that way. But, you know, if you go travel in China, hopefully you don't walk around like the ugly American speaking English to people and being angry at them that they don't understand you. Hopefully you understand that you're in a country where people speak a different language. Men and women could benefit from the same practice. When they speak with each other, it would be wise to remember that the person you're talking to doesn't necessarily speak the same language you do, and you might learn how to talk in a way that they understand. You can stand on ceremony and say, well, I said it in English. There's no reason you wouldn't understand it. And that's fine if you want to be alone the rest of your life. But if you want to actually be close to somebody, you might actually try to learn talking in ways that they understand.
1: I hope you've been enjoying this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com shop, where you will find goods and services I've personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. You also talked about fear of commitment and fear of abandonment, which might seem like opposites, but I'm guessing they're more closely linked than we
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: think at first glance.
0: <clears throat> the fear of commitment is a really interesting one. Yeah. Um, because all the stereotypes suggest men are taught to believe that marriage is to their disadvantage, that marriage is to women's advantage and to women's to men's disadvantage, and that women want to trap men into marriage, and that men are best served by avoiding marriage for as long as possible. Right? The old, you know, somebody's mother or grandmother or great mother in your family said, Why would he buy the cow if he could get the milk for free. This is what moms used to say to their daughters to get them to not have premarital sex. He won't want to marry you if he can have sex with you. But the data says the exact opposite. Married women are less happy, less healthy, and less happy, healthy. What did I forget? There's a third one. It'll come back to me. And married men are happier and healthier than single guys. Married men live longer than single guys. Married men make more money than single guys. Married men are happier than single women. So it's in, in almost every way except financial. Marriage serves men better than women. And so the stereotypes that we taught are completely, and we know it's true because when couples break up, it's the man who gets repartnered much faster than the woman. Man is the one who is less comfortable being on his own and feels more of a sense of urgency about repartnering. So, women are more connected to their dependency needs in a relationship, and men are taught to think of dependency as feminine, and therefore, they're not aware of the ways that, that, that the relationship nurtures and supports them which they often discover very uncomfortably when they divorce.
1: So if people were making decisions rationally based on data, which, you know, the field of economics learned a long time ago is a very right. faulty hypothesis. It not happen, right. Uh, then men would be chomping at the bit to get married because they yeah. would know that being married means you'll live longer and you'll be happier and healthier. Yeah. Um, and women, you know, men would be having to convince women that there's something that's in right. it for us. And um, that's what's
0: happening. Women are, um, hmm. are uh, delaying marriage longer and reconsidering and more divorces by far are initiated by women than men. So what you're, what you're imagining is exactly what's happening. And part of it is economically driven because one of the, probably the only advantage for women in marriage is financial, but that advantage is diminishing because for most women, they're going to be working whether they're married or not. And being married just means taking on a second job, um, which is taking care of their partner and their children. And so there's less economic incentive for women to marry and fewer women now, when surveyed, fewer women say that they assume they're going to be married.
1: And yet I see a lot of the opposite. I see um, women in their 20s and 30s who want to get married, want to start a family, or maybe they're not sure about kids, but they want to settle down with a life partner. And it takes so many men you know, until their 40s um, to realize that that's a good thing. I I think especially, you know, men with any degree of status, you know, Mm -hmm. if they're basically above average looking and have any confidence, then, you know, they feel like they have their pick. But, you know, what what I see is the opposite. Um, so it's interesting because all of those things are happening at the same time because yeah, there are many humans are. and many, many life stories playing out. But what would you say overall about men's fears of commitment and fears of abandonment?
0: Well, the fears of commitment are, you know, they don't fit the data. They're irrational And, and it's it's a disconnect from their own needs for intimacy and interdependency in a relationship. And the, the more connected men are to their need for connection with other human beings, the less they will think about marriage as a threat um, and someone trying to take advantage of them. And the more they will think about marriage as something or commitment in a relationship as something that is at least as beneficial to them as it is to a woman. And the, the other one was um, fear of abandonment. So it's you know very closely related. Again, when couples, when heterosexual couples split up, it's the man who repartners more quickly and all of these fears that we're talking about today really all come from that fear of abandonment. So there's a very famous social psych experiment, and the link is um, on my webpage, called the still face experiment. And in the still, if you're familiar with it, I'll explain it to your listeners. In the still face experiment, they take moms and infants, little babies, and they do a split screen with them, and, the, and they're interacting with each other. And it's, you very quickly see that they're having a conversation. Not with words, obviously. It's a baby, but the they, you know, the baby makes a cute face, and the mom smiles, and the mom makes a funny noise, and the baby smiles. They're, they're learning how to communicate with each other, and and it's interdependent and interactive. They are they are interacting with each other, and they are pleasing each other, and they are shaping each other because each of them is trying out different behaviors to see which ones elicit a positive response. So they're learning about each other. Then the moms are instructed to turn away from the camera and turn back with a still face. Not angry, not disapproving, not rejecting, just not responsive. And most of the babies within a minute become unbelievably upset. They're they're not just crying, they're wailing. And some of the babies actually lost body control and bowel control, soiled themselves. They were so upset just by their moms. Now, one of the interesting sidebars of the research is the boy babies were more upset and lasted longer than the girl babies. And Then you go and you look at heterosexual adult relationships, and you take physiological measures of men and women during conflict. What do you know? The men are more physiologically distressed during conflict than the women, and their distress lasts longer. And that Ancient, not ancient, but early dynamic is what exactly what plays out for men because if you're heterosexual, your partner is the same gender as your mommy. And so it elicits the same early distress, isn't even a big enough word to describe it, panic at the thought that, and so guys will tell you all the time, they are hyper-focused on whether or not their partner is upset with them. I had a guy tell me once, that he could tell if his wife was mad at him when he walked in the door before he saw her. He could. He believed that he could feel it in the air before she spoke or he saw her. He was that hypervigilant about needing her approval. You and I would say, he would say, I'm worried my wife's upset with me, but we understand what he's really saying, and I'm worried she's going to leave me. I'm always worried she's going to leave me and i always feel like i'm on a job where i'm on my 30 day what do you call the first partner job where you um
1: probation you know,
0: yeah i'm always on probation i i never have a secure job i could lose my job in a moment's notice and of course you know with divorce now or 50% and women filing the majority of divorce claims they're not crazy they're not paranoid they're right um, their marriages, they are on probation and there is a reasonable chance that their wife is, and they're terrified and they have no, they understand on some level that they really are not able to take care of themselves. And so they're terrified that their partner will leave them and leave them. So, you know, when guys get divorced, they're usually, they only think about all the things they don't like their marriage that they're going to get rid of. Oh, I want to have to do this and I want to do this and I want to do this. They don't think about all the parts of their lives That their wives have been managing for them that they don't even know she was doing. So they think, oh, I'll get to spend more time with my friends. And then they get divorced and they find out they don't have any friends. They only have people they know who are husbands of their wives' friends, that they don't actually have any friends, which I hear all the time from guys who get divorced. And so they come to terms with, they discover for the first time really how dependent emotionally they are on their wives. And so they go out and they get a new partner very quickly.
1: It's fascinating. I, I know of the still face experiment. I think um, you know most people in our field are familiar with, you know, those studies on attachment, but um, I didn't know that there were gender differences in the reaction.
0: It's way in the back of the article. Yeah. And, and, and that's that fascinating. It's for adults, that, it's, that it doesn't change, that we're still little babies. I'm speaking about myself, so I'm allowed to say that, that men are, in some ways, still little babies who are terrified that our mommies will not even be mean to us, but just not tell us we're okay for a moment, who will not provide the kind of reassurance that we don't even want to admit we need. Mm -hmm. Um, This is a, a little personal, but I find myself sometimes without thinking saying to my wife, do you still love me? Like, what a bizarre question. Why do I have to ask her that? but it just comes out before I think about it. You know, it's on my mind. I'm worried about it. She hasn't done anything. I don't have any reason to be. It's not like she, you know, whatever. It's not like we had a fight or anything. I'm just like out of the blue. Sometimes we'll say, do you still love me? I need the reassurance. I need her to say, yes, I do.
1: So you've said that the number one thing you hear from men in your work is that they feel criticized. So I'd like to ask for your advice for men and for women here, what can women do to express ourselves and our requests without pushing that button for men? And it's what really can men do point. to hear yeah. uh, to hear women differently so that they don't go to that place of hearing it as criticism?
0: It's really more that work is more for men than women. So what women can do is what Gottman talks about: the slow startup. Gottman says the conflict between couples goes better when there's a slow startup. If you just run right in and hit it head on, you're going to get a defensive response. And so for women, it's things like, honey, the best thing, I'd like to talk to you about. Everything's fine. Don't worry. I'm not leaving you. How's, you know, c- can we, can we, uh, after we put the kids tonight to bed tonight, you know, like give them some time, give them some notice, tell them you're not getting ready to divorce him. And um, of course, the more times that happens and it goes well, the less likely he is to be afraid about doing that. But really the onus falls more on men, which is to learn how to say, I'm starting to to get a little overwhelmed, starting to feel defensive. Could you slow down, please? Could you try saying it a different way? But to monitor and track, to not just react to your emotional state, but to learn how to talk about it, to learn how to, to talk to your partner about how you're feeling and and of course, women, to, when they see their partner withdrawing, is to not just keep going, but to say, "Oh, I I think I'm going a little too fast. You want you want me to slow down, or you I mean, you know, do it enough times, you learn what is going on. But to 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 have a conversation that's not just about the content, therapists do this all time, of course, but to include the process as well, to be talking with each other about how the conversation is going.
1: Right, So Gottman's softening your startup, um, leading with reassurance. And yeah. and for men, when you say that work is mostly on them, what, what are some key aspects of how you help men hear women differently?
0: To, to A, learn how to talk about how it's going for you as the conversation is progressing, and B, to learn the kind of self-soothing skills so that when you start to want to withdraw, that you hang in there and you lean, as the language I like, is lean in rather than pull back. Because when you pull back, that's the end of any kind of productive exchange. But if you can talk about feeling scared and then learn how to lean in, that's what's going to make from a, from the for the couple, that's what's needed for things to go better. So to learn how to do that, which you're more likely to learn with other men.
1: And toward the very beginning of our conversation, you were talking about anger and how Anger is not the same thing as abuse. There are certainly ways right. people can express anger that are abusive, but it's anger is yeah. a normal emotion. and you, And you reframed anger as a sign essentially that someone's in it with you. Like I wouldn't Absolutely. be here expressing my frustration about what's not working if I wasn't trying to make it work because I care about you. So it seems well, like so. that piece of advice comes back around here that if men are feeling criticized, maybe that's part of the reframe too of, you know, she wouldn't be bringing this up, if she didn't care to make it work to, you know, if she wasn't looking out for her happiness in this relationship, because she loves you.
0: Yeah, nine times out of 10, when men say they feel critical, I can't see what they're talking about. Um, I don't hear anything that sounded critical. So nine times out of 10, if a man says to a woman, you know, I think you're being critical of me, she will probably say, well, no, I, I wasn't feeling critical. But then we'll clarify what she's trying to say in a less potentially critical sounding way.
1: And to be fair, I I want to give a shout out to all the women listening to this who say I absolutely struggle with that because I think that it is a common experience amongst us as women that we try to express a feeling or a need and it comes out sounding critical. And a lot of the time we do know it, right? It's just that we're struggling. We don't know how to say it in a way that doesn't sound critical or doesn't sound like we're nagging. And I think that that's something that women need help with too and we, we need compassion and patience. You know, if you're hearing criticism, or if it sounds like nagging, understand that we don't like being in that position. In fact, maybe that's part of why it's coming out sideways or passive aggressive, because we're actually Mm -hmm. so uncomfortable with with being critical or asking so much. So we're we're looking for your help as well, figuring out how to word things in a way that's not so alienating.
0: I think you're absolutely right. And I think the reason that women get frustrated and patient and critical is that men haven't been listening. And so who doesn't get impatient and critical when you feel like you're not being listened to? And so if you can sort of hone your message, and so it doesn't sound like you want to go for a walk with me, but it sounds like, hey, I'd like to spend some time with you, I think you're going to get a different response. I think if you learn how to be clear about what you're looking for, it's not threatening. When a woman says to a man, would you like to hang out? I don't think he's going to respond defensively.
1: Okay. Well said. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap up. So tell people where they can find you and your work.
0: You can find pretty much everything you'd want at avramweissphd.com. You'll find links to my books, links to uh, I Write Regularly for Psychology Today, where I've had 2 million views of people reading about things exactly like we've been talking about. And if you sign up for the mailing list on that website, you will get a free ebook about some some articles from psychology today about these issues and relationships.
1: And your books are everywhere books are found? Like Amazon? They're all, they're all on
0: Amazon. Um and you can find them there.
1: Okay, great. And I will add your books to my website's bookshop page as well. I use Amazon affiliate links and I have a section right at the top of sometherapist.com slash bookshop where um, anyone, any author who I've interviewed on the show, their book is front and center there. So I'll make sure to add yours there as well. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
0: If I can add one more thing, which is that sure. I'm starting to do workshops nationally that are just very interesting. I'm doing workshops to, for helping men and women understand each other better. And the the format I'm using, I'm dating myself here, but there used to be a, a game show on television called The Newlywed Game. And I'm using the format from The Newlywed Game. And basically I ask questions of men and I ask women to predict what the men would be thinking in a situation. And I ask men to predict what they think the women would be thinking. And then we share the answers together. And of course they're wrong way more than they're right. Misunderstanding each other hugely. And it's a fun kind of way for women and women to not only see where they're missing each other, but begin to understand more about what's going on inside for each of them. So I'm doing those workshops at churches and all kinds of places. And they're a lot of fun. That
1: sounds fun. That sounds fun and enlightening and humbling in a good way. And (laughs) just uh a reminder for the listeners, I know I've I've said several things today speaking to the devil's advocate or speaking to the listener who's taking an uncharitable view, and I feel like this should go without saying, but obviously we didn't address everyone today. We addressed specifically heterosexual partnered That's people, right. so we're talking about men I and women you. who are dating or married. Um, this does not deny the reality and the existence of the relationships of gays and lesbians. It's just a conversation about what it is about, and yeah. we're not speaking to the, you know, to the relationship dynamics of gay and lesbian couples today. Um, Just speaking to our particular areas of expertise and interest in this conversation.
0: That's why, because it's what I know about. I'm not excluding anyone.
1: Thank you so much for sharing today. It's been a
0: delight. I enjoy talking with you.
1: I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Nguyen, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At SomeTherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at SomeTherapist. If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at SomeTherapist.com. You can also send us a voice memo with your question and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.